Uh, last week, if you weren't here, we started a little mini-series, uh, and I love mini-series, don't you? A little mini-series, a little three-week mini-series on theology. And we said last week that theology sometimes can be a really intimidating word, that, that we, you know, it's kind of a big word, and it can be archaic, or, you know, it's, it's kind of meant for the ivory towers, but theology is not really an intimidating word. It's very simply words about God. Theology is simply words about God, and we all have a theology. Did you know that? Everybody has a theology. Every, everyone speaks words about God. Even the atheist who says God does not exist is speaking words about God. So the atheist is advocating for a theology. It's a wrong theology, but it's a theology nonetheless. And because everyone has a theology, there are so many theologies out there that we can choose from. So we have to be sure to do very rigorous theological work as Christian people, as the church, because our words about God matter. Theology matters. The answers to questions like who is God or what is God like or what are his attributes are vital because the answer to those questions when they're extrapolated out over the course of a more systematic understanding of life, God, faith, whatever, have really, really big consequences. We used the example last week of a fatal uh, commercial flight or a fatal uh, passenger flight that, that uh, the plane wrecked only because the flight coordinates were off by just two degrees. And it put the pilots 25 kilometers off course when they finally reached their destination. In the same way, when our theology, when our words about God are off by just a couple degrees, it makes a really, really big difference. So theology, good theology, right theology really matters. And because theology matters, our goal for the next three, or for these three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, is to establish the foundation for a cogent biblical theology. We can't do it all in three weeks, but we're going to scratch the surface. And so here's where we began last week by filling in this blank on this statement. God is. God is. We're going to fill it in with a different word this week, but last week we began here. God is triune. God is triune. That is to say that God is one God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. These are distinct and they are one. If that sounds confusing or paradoxical to you, please hop online and listen to the sermon from last week. I pray it will confuse you more. So, here's what we're going to do. This week, we're going to fill in our blank with a different word, and here's what we're going to declare, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. If you're jotting down notes, you can just jot that statement down. God is sovereign. That's where we're headed this morning. That's what we're going to do is define and affirm the sovereignty of God. Before we do that, I would love for us to just join our hearts together and pray and ask that that sovereign God would speak to us in and through his word this morning. Let's pray. God, we have declared that your name is a strong and mighty tower. God, we, we can run into your name and be safe because you're in control, because you're sovereign. We have hailed the power of Jesus' name. And so God, even as we begin to prepare our hearts for the next 40 minutes or so, as we hear from your word to sing and close that you are sovereign over us, teach us, oh God, what that means. Help us to hold that truth close in our heart and respond in a posture of worship. I'd open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts this morning to what you have to say in and through your word. In Christ's name, the people of God with enthusiasm said, amen. 
I want to just kind of warn you as we uh, embark on this journey toward defining and affirming the sovereignty of God, there's going to be some pitfalls this morning that I don't want for us to fall into. Because if we fall into one of them and our theology is off by just a couple of degrees, remember it's going to have far-reaching consequences. The first pitfall, just I kind of want to alert you to, is the I don't understand it so it must not be true pitfall. I don't understand it does not equal it's not true. And when it comes to God's sovereignty, it's not an easy topic to understand. So when we have a difficult time understanding it, we might be tempted to conclude that God isn't sovereign. Simply because we don't understand how his sovereignty relates to things like man's responsibility or our ability to make real choices with real consequences. We don't understand how his sovereignty relates to sin all the time. So we might be tempted to conclude that God is not sovereign. But remember, I don't understand it does not equal it's not true. I don't understand why the earth doesn't just fly off of its axis. But just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, the second potential hazard or pitfall or danger when we embark on this journey to define and affirm the sovereignty of God is good old-fashioned pride. <laughs> it's just pride. Our hearts want to spurn the sovereignty of God because we don't want to live under a sovereign. We want to be our own sovereign, don't we? And so we tend to spurn the sovereignty of God. We tend to ignore the sovereignty of God. We tend to reject the sovereignty of God. And we say, I don't like it, thus it's not true. But I don't like it does not equal it's not true. We would be like an infant who closes their eyes when a parent is requiring them to eat their vegetables, right? Like just because I ignore it, because I don't like it, doesn't mean when I open my eyes, my parent isn't still there in total control. Okay, the third pitfall that I don't want us to fall into because it's, it's really, really important and we're going to see how this works itself out as we talk about the sovereignty of God this morning is that I want us to be really, really clear that sovereignty does not equal causality. Sovereignty does not equal causality. So here's what I mean by that. This morning, I am going to make a case that the Bible affirms God's absolute and total control in all things, but the Bible most definitely does not teach that God is the author of or cause of sin. God is sovereign over all things, but God does not cause sin. His sovereignty does not equal causality. We'll come back to that here in a few minutes as we unpack the implications of the sovereignty of God. And especially when it comes to God's sovereignty, we might be tempted to adjust our theology by just a few degrees to make it more palatable, to make it more comfortable, to make it more understandable. But those few degrees of adjustment have wide and far-reaching implications. So this morning, we're going to do our best to be very, very faithful to the biblical witness of the sovereignty of God. Are we okay with that? We're just going to read what the Bible says and declare what the Bible says of the sovereignty of God. So, so let's start by defining God's sovereignty. You may not think that this is a critical task of defining the word sovereignty, but it can be a little bit of an archaic word that we don't use all that much. And if you've seen the YouTube video of former U.S. President George W. Bush, he's asked, uh, what is tribal sovereignty? Have you seen this YouTube video? Okay, Google it when you get home. It's worth it, I promise, okay? And I liked President Bush. I still like President Bush, but he like blubbers around like a fish out of water trying to define this word sovereignty. It's not an easy word 
to define. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a very, very simple definition of sovereignty so we all understand what we're talking about. And then we're going to kind of add some flesh to that skeleton definition with some uh, theologians. Here's our really simple definition of the sovereignty of God. You ready? God controls all things at all times. God is in control of all things at all times. That's what we're going to declare this morning and watch the scripture uh, give evidence to, that God is in control of all things at all times. Let's add a little bit of flesh to our skeleton definition here. The dictionary defines sovereignty this way. Having indisputable and supreme rank, power, or authority. So when we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that he has indisputable and supreme rank, power, and authority. A couple of Bible scholars that I really like define the sovereignty of God. Norm Geisler says this, sovereignty is God's control over his creation, dealing with his governance over it. Sovereignty is God's rule over all reality. A guy named Charles Ryrie writes this, he says, the word sovereignty, speaks first of position, that God is the chief being in the universe, then of power, God is supreme in power in the universe. Ultimately, God is in control of all things. R.C. Sproul writes this, sovereignty belongs to deity. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of the creator. God owns what he makes and he rules what he owns. Uh, There's a theologian from the early 20th century named Arthur Pink. Uh, You might have heard of him before. If you Google him, they'll say his name is A.W. Pink because that's what happens when you become a really good theologian is they call you by your initials, not by your first name. So A.W. Pink, one of my favorites, did a lot of work on the sovereignty of God, has a great definition of the sovereignty of God. It's about 300 pages long. It's a book called The Sovereignty of God. I'm not going to read all 300 pages of Pink's definition for you, but I'm going to read a good chunk of it here okay and this is a great definition of the sovereignty of God as we talk about what that means A.W. Pink writes this what do we mean by the sovereignty of God we mean the supremacy of God the kingship of God the godhood of God to say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God I like that To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. Okay, so all those guys, this shouldn't surprise you, they're all smarter than me. A lot smarter than me, okay? So we're going to boil it down to the really simple NLT, New Lucas Translation version, okay? They're all saying the same thing. God is in control of all things at all times. Did you hear it? God is in control of all things at all times. Nothing slips through God's providential fingers. God is never reactionary, never caught off guard, and never out of control. In all ways, in all things, and at all times, God maintains supreme authority and power. Like a king in his kingdom, God, as the great 
king over all that is seen and unseen, is sovereign over all. He controls all things at all times. We with me on the definition? Okay, now I want to show you from the Bible the evidence that supports that definition. I've chosen 10 verses, but there are far more than 10 verses that affirm the sovereignty of God. The Bible is replete with evidence for the sovereignty of God. But if we read all of those verses, we'd be here until kickoff. And I want to get home by kickoff, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to read 10. And I'm going to read you the verses, but what I've done is I've put the verse references up here on the screen, okay? So I put the book and the chapter and the verse because I would encourage you to just jot them down and go back and look at them later today and throughout the course of the week, okay? But I'm going to read you these verses that affirm the sovereignty of God. Here we go. Psalm 135, verse 6 says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. We could probably just stop there, right? (laughs) Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and all the seas and all deeps. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 46, 10, I'm going to start in verse 9 and read through verse 11. Remember the former things of old, God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job is talking to God there. Second Chronicles 26, or as Donald Trump would say, two Chronicles. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so there's none is able to withstand you. Job 9, 12, behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Isaiah 43, 13, also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Psalm 47, 2, for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared a great king, king over all the earth. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul starts to talk about the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And he writes this. He says that God will display Christ at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only, here's our word, sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Over and over and over again, the Bible affirms that God is in control of all things at all times. God is in control of all things at all times. Those are just 10 verses. There are so many more than that. And if you're a believer in the Bible, you might readily affirm the sovereignty of God. You might say with me this morning, yes, the Bible says that God is in control of all things at all times, but... I don't know that we always let that phrase, all things at all times, bleed over into every aspect of our life, do we? I'm not sure that we always recognize how pervasive the sovereignty of God really is, how it permeates every aspect of life and faith and reality. So what I did this morning was I picked three, just three areas of life where we tend to forget that God is in control because we don't always remember. We need to be reminded sometimes. He's in control of far more than just these three. Indeed, he's in control of all things at all times. But I've picked three that I feel like as a church we may need to be reminded of this morning. And so my hope is that you would leave encouraged 
that our God is in control of all things at all times. All right? So let's start here. God is sovereign over authority. God is sovereign over authority. Anyone or anything that has any authority at all falls totally within and under the ultimate and total sovereignty of God. I want you to see it in the scripture in Romans chapter 13. Paul writes this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. I like that. Okay, look what else he says. And those that exist, the the authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that God is sovereign over authority. And get this, there are no qualifying statements there in Romans 13, are there? Paul doesn't say God is sovereign over fair rulers. He's sovereign over godly governments. He's sovereign over good bosses. He says that God is sovereign over all authority. But remember one of the things that we established, that sovereignty does not necessarily equal causality. So God does not cause, necessarily cause, corrupt governments, bad bosses, and tyrannical authority. Those things are a result of sin. That also doesn't mean that God is sovereign over authority. It also does not mean that we're to sit silent in the face of abusive authority. For example, if a child, a helpless child, is being abused by authority, we're not to sit silent in the face of that authority. Please hear me say that. What this does mean in Romans 13, that God is sovereign over authority, is is that no matter what authority is in place in your life, God put it there. He's in control over it ultimately, and he's using it for his glory and your good. I don't care what the authority is. The Bible does not care either. There is no authority except that which is from God, and God instituted all of them. Your boss, your parents, legislation, speed limits, the government, it's all instituted by God. I, uh, I just jotted down, just the, the, to remind me what I wanted to talk about here, I just jotted down the phrase, pick on Americans. Because I love to pick on Americans. I just love it. I'm American. Uh, I've, I've lived here for now two and a half years. And so, um, please, if you are not American, don't pick on Americans. You can't do that. If you're Canadian, feel free to pick on Canadians. But I'm American, so I'm going to pick on Americans for a minute. Okay? In the U.S., many of my Christian brothers and sisters from the U.S., and, and I'm the same way. We don't do really great with this God is sovereign over authority thing. Because here's, here's what happens. A lot of friends of mine and, and, and even myself, we participate in government and we vote and we make our voice heard and we speak out for and against legislation that we think is biblical or not biblical and all of that stuff. And then there comes this time where someone gets elected that we think is maybe outside of the will of God. You ever felt that way? We, we, we think that like a legislation gets passed and we're like, man, that doesn't line up with biblical principles. And all of a sudden we begin to believe that God is no longer in control. And we panic a little bit and we scramble a little bit. I'm not talking about Americans anymore, am I? This is everybody. Remember, men and women of God, that the sovereignty of God does not stop in heaven. It extends to governments and authorities and rulers. Any and every ruler in your life is instituted only by God. There is no authority in heaven and on earth, no, not one, that God is not sovereign over. 
He is still in control. I don't care who got elected. I don't care what legislation passed. It does not compromise the sovereignty of God. Good? With me? Good. Okay, let's keep going. This is going to be hard. This is going to be a hard one. Ready? Let's, let's make it difficult. Uh, God is sovereign over sin. God is sovereign over sin. You got to stick with me here, okay? When we talk about this, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge for many of us, but you have to stick with me here. Even in the midst of sin, God is still in control. God is accomplishing his purpose and furthering his kingdom. Now, it's interesting to me because it's almost as if the Bible knows that our minds work this way. Well, sovereignty equals causality. And remember, we said that sovereignty does not equal causality. So God knows that we would lean that way and we would say, well, because God is sovereign, he must be the author of sin. So I don't have to shoulder any blame for my sin. He knows that we as people are sinful human beings and we would use his sovereignty, leverage his sovereignty as a way to escape responsibility for our own sin. God knows this is coming. That's why he writes in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. James goes on to say that we're tempted by our own evil desires. We are dragged away and enticed by them. What is James telling us here? He's saying that God does not imagine, create, generate, produce, or otherwise cause sin. Can I make it any more clear? God does not imagine, create, produce, generate, or otherwise cause sin. Sin. In other words, God's sovereignty does not equal his causality. God is not the author of sin. We are. And people are responsible for the sins that they commit. But God is still sovereign over sin. Sin does not compromise God's authority. Sin does not undercut that God is all things at all times. God is still in control in the face of sin. So we can say things like this. God governs all things in this world and even sin. Is not outside his control. We can say that God foresees all that will come and he can stop anything he pleases from happening or he can permit it to happen. And whether he stops it or permits it, he controls it in either case. Okay, so this, again, this is difficult. I know this is a challenge, but I want to show you four biblical examples when people sin and God is still in control, God is still accomplishing his purpose, okay? Just so, just so we know, okay? When Satan tempts Job by destroying basically everything he's got. Job 1.12 and 2.6 both indicate that before Satan does this, he has to ask a sovereign God's permission. He does not exercise what he wants to do outside of the will of a sovereign God. Example number two. In Luke 22, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift Peter like wheat. Satan has asked. He has to request permission. So in Peter's temptation, and yes, even in his sin, God is still in control. He's still sovereign. He's still moving things forward for his glory and for our 
good. Love this one, Joseph and his brothers. Many of you who know the Old Testament know this story. For those of you who don't, Joseph, when he was young, was sold into slavery by his brothers. And Genesis 50 verse 20, when all is kind of said and done and Joseph becomes a redeemer for God's people in Egypt, he was sold into slavery in Egypt and becomes a redeemer for God's people in Egypt. In Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph says this, What you intended for evil, now listen close, God intended for good. Isn't that amazing? That even in their sin, they had an evil intention, an evil purpose, a wicked purpose, but God had a good purpose, intention. It's it's interesting to me because we think of God as being reactionary. You know, things happen and he kind of moves things around on the chessboard and he kind of olays here and there as if to work everything out for his purpose. But Genesis 50 verse 20 says that he has an intention, he has a sovereign will, he has a purpose and sin does not undercut that. So much so that in Psalm 105 verse 17, uh, the psalmist writes this, that God sent a man ahead of his people, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They think they were sending him. Mm -mm -mm. God, the sovereign God, sent Joseph, according to Psalm 105 17. God was ultimately in control. How about one more example? Can you think of a biblical example of sin that God foreordained, that God had planned from the beginning of time, perhaps the most heinous sin that the world has ever known? How about the cross? How about the cross? God displays his sovereignty, his control, his purpose, even at the cross. Listen to what Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28 says. Listen so close. This is critical. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And what were they doing? Listen, this is a quote. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I know we bristle up against that word predestined. I know we don't like that. Hey, that's hard for some of us. But listen to it again. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. God predestined the greatest sin the world has ever known, the crucifixion of Christ. Herod and Pilate made real choices for which they are really held accountable. Those who were gathered there that, 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 that carried out the execution of Christ made real choices for which they are really held accountable. But those choices do not fall outside of the context of God's sovereign plan. Listen to me, that doesn't mean sin is excusable. It doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean that it's good. It certainly doesn't mean that you and I should go on sinning so that grace may increase, Romans 6, 1, please. What it means is that sin does not compromise the sovereignty of God. It means that God even uses sin for his glory and our good. That God even uses sin for his glory and our good. Listen close because this is critical. When you're mistreated... When you're abused, when you're lied about, when you're forgotten, betrayed, neglected, when sin, when the decay of sin has an impact in your family and in your relationships, when the world seems like it's falling apart because the people around you reject God, 
and run their own way. And in their rebellion, they cause you pain. Remember, O people of God, that God is still sovereign. He is still in control. This is why Jesus would say to us, fear not, little flock. (laughs) God is still on the throne. He's still in control. No matter what evil befalls you, God is still sovereign. He's still working for his glory and for your good. Now that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. If you would immerse yourself in the ocean of God's sovereignty and understand that even in the midst of sin, he is still in control, it would bring freedom and joy like you perhaps have never experienced before. To know that God, your God, your heavenly Father, is on the throne. Finally, let's do one more. Let's do one more. God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. We've declared, we've asserted, and we've watched the biblical evidence bear it out that God is in control of all things at all times. So God is in control of your salvation from beginning to end. Now, when we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, we may be tempted to fall into trap number two. Remember that trap number two was, I don't like it, therefore it's not true. This truth may be difficult for some of us. Some of us may say, I don't like that truth because it requires a level of humility that we don't tend to display. But God's sovereignty and salvation is liberating and joy-bringing if we understand its implications. And most often when we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, trap number two looks like this. Well, I've got a free will. I've got a free will. In other words, I I, I want a free will or I feel I have a free will and God's sovereignty and my salvation means releasing this concept of a free will and I don't like that, so I just reject God's sovereignty. But let's start here. The Bible actually doesn't teach that you and I have a free will. Did you know that? When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that he is the only being that has a totally unrestricted and free will. You and I have a restricted will. Let's, let's do it just outside of the bi- biblical context, okay? I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna demonstrate to you that our will is restricted, and we'll go back to the Bible here in a minute, okay? Here's, here's my little demonstration. I am gonna will myself to fly. How'd I do? Not good, right? Because my will is restricted by gravity. Again, when we say that God is sovereign, we affirm that he is the only being who has a completely free and unrestricted will. You and I have a restricted will. Gravity restricts our will or our choice to fly. So the Bible says the same thing about our will when it comes to spiritual things. Our will is restricted. Uh, Not just restricted, in fact, it's dead. We are totally unable to make a choice for God. Listen to the way Romans 3 puts it. This is all over the Bible. I just picked one from Romans 3. Paul writes this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
The Bible goes so far in this restricted will concept that it describes our will as dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1 and Colossians 2 verse 13 both confirm that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our will was rendered helpless. And on and on it goes, the Bible affirms that our will is incapacitated when it comes to seeking God. Okay, so let's, let's continue our gravity analogy and talk about the implications of God's sovereignty when it comes to salvation. Okay, I, I've got a book here in my hand. It's um, a book, book I just pulled from my shelf this morning. It's Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Good book. Um, the Bible's better, but, you know, this is good too. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's our analogy. If I drop this book, where's it going to go? Come on now. Talk to me. If I drop it, where's it going to go? If I drop it again, where's it going to go? There you go. If I drop it a hundred times, how many times is it going to hit the floor? Right. Gravity is acting upon the book. Listen, I am not forcing the book down. Gravity does the work. The book does not stay up unless it's acted upon by an outside force. Just as I cannot will myself to fly, gravity restricts my will, the book can't will itself to stay up, gravity wins. And we said last week that analogies can be helpful but not comprehensive. The same is true in our little analogy that we just used here. However, it can be helpful in terms of understanding the sovereignty of God and the restricted will of man. So, so stick with me on the analogy. We are like the book. Sin is like gravity. And God is like me in this particular case. I know it's difficult to imagine, but God is the outside force. Just as I did not force the book down, gravity did that. God does not force us into sin. The gravity of sin takes care of that. And no matter what, sin pulls us down every time. Just as the book is incapacitated, we are incapacitated, unable to lift ourselves up. So as Romans would say, no one seeks God. We're altogether worthless. We're unable to lift ourselves up. However, God, in his sovereignty, is that gracious outside force. He enters into our helplessness and exercises his control over the power and gravity of sin. And you might say to yourself, well, what about faith, Luke? I, I, there was an act of faith. I, I, I took a step of faith. But according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, even that faith is a gift from God such that no man could boast. We were dead in our sin, rendered helpless until God exercised his sovereignty for his glory and our good. He initiated, sustains, and will complete the good work of salvation in us because he is sovereign in all things at all times. Romans chapter 8 talks about the salvation process and leaves no room for doubt. Romans 8 reads this way. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. I know, again, we bristle up against this word, but there it is in the Bible. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those 
he, this is God, predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Interestingly enough, this glorified thing hasn't even happened yet. But Paul is so certain of the sovereignty of God and salvation, he talks about it in the past tense as if it's already happened. That's how sure our salvation is in Christ. The next verse reads this way. And then we partnered with God in an act of completely free will by placing our faith in him. No, it doesn't say that. It says that salvation is God's sovereign choice from start to finish. And when we release the pride that causes us to maintain a white-knuckled grip on free will, here's the joy and liberation that comes with God's sovereignty and salvation. Our salvation is secure. Our salvation is secure. The exercise of God's love towards the fallen sons of men is according to his own good pleasure. It had nothing to do with what we could bring God. In fact, we brought him nothing. It had everything to do with his great love and his good pleasure. And because his great love and good pleasure, his will is completely free and unrestricted, he, in an act of grace, leveraged his complete control of all things at all times in order to secure our our salvation. For that reason, I, with Paul in Philippians 1, can affirm that the good work that God started in me, he will indeed complete because he's been in control the whole time anyway. And you know what? You can too. You can affirm that too, that your salvation is secure because of the sovereignty of God. The next time you're tempted to doubt, am I really saved? The next time you're tempted to ask the question, well, if I do this or if I say that, will I lose my what? Salvation. Remember this, that in John chapter 10, Jesus himself said this, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Listen to the security of your salvation built upon the sovereignty of God. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Sovereign. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus builds his argument for our eternal security, our secure salvation upon the sovereignty of God, that he is in control of all things at all times. So we've affirmed that God is in control of all things at all times, and we've affirmed that he's in control of rulers, authorities, powers, government. We've affirmed that he's in control even in the face of sin. We've affirmed that he's in control through the entire salvation process. What should this do in us, in the heart of believers? What's our response to that sovereign God? The first response that I thought of, at least for me, is joy. This joy. We've defined joy this way in here on a number of occasions, that joy is simply the absence of fear. When I'm not afraid, when there's no terror, when when there's nothing that seems out of control, I can express uninhibited joy, knowing that God is sovereign, he's on the throne, and he's in control. I think of my uh, little girl, my daughter, who... Uh, turned 17 months yesterday or the day before. Uh, when I come home from work after a long day, I come in the door, and typically when I come in the door, she's in her little chair eating, you know, or throwing food or whatever it is that she does. And when I come in the door, I, I, I can't tell you what uninhibited joy I see on her face. 
She loves me. She thinks I'm awesome. She likes my jokes. She likes my songs. She likes my dances. She likes when I take her sledding. And you know what else she likes? She likes thinking that I'm in control of all things at all times. And you know what? In my house, I am. I'm the sovereign in my home. As long as that's okay with you, babe. Is that okay? (laughs) Amy's not always in both services, so I I forgot which service she was going to be in. And in in her little world, I'm in control. There's nothing to fear. When things feel out of control for Kaya, where does she run? To the sovereign or to the sovereign. (laughs) She can can have inexpressible joy, inexhaustible joy. The total absence of fear. Do you know that Jesus tells us that we can do the same thing because our heavenly father is sovereign? You know that? He does so in Matthew chapter 10. Let me read it for you. He says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're two sparrows for a penny. You get two for one for a penny. We don't even use pennies anymore. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Why? He's sovereign. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. And in that passage, four times Jesus tells us, fear not. Four times he says, you do not have to be afraid because God is sovereign. You can have joy because he's in control. Now that's pretty cool. The second response in the face of a sovereign God is simply worship. It's just worship. This is where we ended our time last week as we talked about Trinitarian theology, that God is triune. And you know what, as I've been thinking about this, about the character of God and about the right response of a heart, of a humble heart, This is really the core call of the gospel. Did you know that? Is to bow before God and worship. And and nearly everything else flows out of that heart of worship before a God who is sovereign. The band actually is going to come back up. Jack, and you guys can make your way back up as I read this passage that inspires us to worship a God who is sovereign. His sovereignty inspires us to worship. Listen to Psalm 97. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. Sovereign. You are exalted far above all gods. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. For he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy, there it is, for the upright in heart. Because of his sovereignty, here's what the psalmist says, rejoice in the Lord, oh, you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's do that. Let's respond in worship to our sovereign God. Let's stand together and sing.